0: This is the intro song for the Never Daily podcast that we do called The Hugs Podcast. Let's start by taking a deep breath of something, preferably air. And as the emotional, pensive guitar music comes in, let all of your worries go. Take another deep breath and prepare yourself for this episode. It might suck or it might might free your earballs to soar with the beagles. This is the Hugs Podcast. Welcome back to the uh, next riveting edition of the Hugs Podcast, our Never Daily Podcast, where we talk about all things. I think the best way to put it is we just come with three stories, but I'll pop. That's it. Hey, but I do have a fun fact to know and share about hugs, like the actual act of hugging. You guys want to hear this or you could say no and we'll move on.
1: The script says yes, so yeah. yes, you yes. want to hear this.
0: Okay, good. I'm just making, That was my test to see if you were actually reading the script. So here's a fun fact to know and share for you about hugging. Hugging increases a, a chemical in our brains, actually. It releases a chemical called oxytocin. It's also called the love hormone. The increase in oxytocin when it's released into your body has beneficial effects on your heart health. Uh, so it's interesting that we use the symbol of a heart, you know, when we talk about love and all that stuff, because I think we did that much, much, much before we ever really knew that love and hugs and those types of things actually have a, a literal hashtag science effect on on our bodies. But, yeah, oxytocin is actually released into your body when you hug somebody.
2: Huh. My uh, girl, like, you know, I'm not the huggy type, but I'll I'll give a hug when I really think that it's necessary. But she'll hug me and she'll say, just hold on for a few more seconds. You'll feel it. Uh (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. I got it. All right. Then let go of me. Get away from me.
0: Fun fact 20 seconds of hugging follows.
2: awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: It does. But if you follow twenty seconds of hugging with ten minutes of hand holding, it reduces. Yeah, I know. It seems uh, now we're now it's a chore. Now we're working. I'd rather take a pill to fix my heart problems or stress than, you know, have this have to do this every day. But twenty seconds of a hug followed by ten minutes of hand holding reduces physical stress um, and can actually. They've done a study. It reduced. The blood pressure of the the women in the study and their heart rate uh, when they when they hugged for 20 seconds and then held someone's hand for – it could be anybody's hand too. It doesn't
1: have to – Being married to you must be time-consuming.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> well, we're not quite done yet, honey. It's, uh, it's two minutes and 12 seconds left. Just, just hang in there.
1: Sorry baby. I was late. I was having to hold my husband's hand. <laughs>
2: yeah. I'd rather get a like. I think you release a lot with a backhand too, you know, but it's a, kind of a one-sided thing. That's you that can, Kentucky hug.
0: Yeah. Once again, 1159, coming together with the facts and knowledge. Thank nice. you, guys. Did
1: you know Thank that you. the traditional drawing of a heart is actually supposed to be two hearts? Is that right? Together? Yeah. Oh. Huh. That's why – because if you think about the shape, the traditional drawing that we have of a heart is nothing the way your heart looks like. That's because yeah, uh, originally it was two hearts pushed together. That's where that shape came from. Uh, Interesting. It looks like two
2: livers pressed together. But yeah, I could see the heart. I could see yeah, that. or an upside down um, buttocks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you ever look at some of the <clears throat> the emojis that are available to us that have been designed, and you're like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there was a high demand for eggplants. So that's why you made that
1: one. Sure. Apparently they made that one for when somebody's grandmother dies. <laughs> and you can send it to them. I think you got to tell the story now, Kent. And when my grandmother was passing away, I tried to open my heart out and spill my heart. Speaking of hearts, I mm-hmm. was pulling mine out of my chest and handing it to my two best friends here. And the operator thought it would be funny in this very, very sad moment of vulnerability that I very rarely let my guard down on to just slam me with (laughs) eggplant, 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 eggplant. And it happens in real time on this app that we use to communicate. So while I'm recording this video, I'm just getting eggplants are just popping up on my screen and I'm crying. (laughs) And it was maybe the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Uh, It immediately changed my demeanor. And I started laughing just uncontrollably. Yeah,
2: was... You were still giggling to yourself when you walked back in the room and everybody was somberly around, yeah. playing a toe tag. <laughs> yeah. and I was genuinely, like, sad
1: in that, like, I mean, I was very close to my grandmother. I loved her very much. She helped raise me. But that was what I needed in that moment. So I guess, honestly, thank you. Thank you, Op, for that. I, I
0: can't recall another time other than that one where I'm literally – moving my thumb on that icon as fast as I can to send it, and in my head at the same time going, what am I doing? What am I doing?
1: <laughs> but uh, I'm glad it landed. I wish I still had that Marco I would post it in the group. I think I've got but... it.
0: I think I've got it. I'll post it. Because also, if you, if, if you haven't picked up on Kent's uh, humor yet, uh, the the Marco that we received before that was was so very much like Kent. Kenta opined about the day for like 8 minutes in this Marco and he's sitting on a step outside of like a brick building was behind him and yeah, it was he's talking hospital. about the yeah he's talking about <laughs> the weather dying. we didn't we didn't know yeah. it because he's covering you know today's topics and you know he's just talking about life and then at the very end he's like oh yeah i guess i should get back in there uh, my grandma's dying <laughs> That's the way we found out about it.
1: It was hard not to laugh. Mm-hmm. I've always taken death just kind of on the chin. Yes, yeah. <laughs> You know, it's going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. Just accept it. I'm, I'm pretty quick. I guess I'm quick for acceptance
2: of it. Yeah. I don't do a
1: lot of fighting it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's kind of an inevitable thing even so, with people yeah. that i really like that that i really care about it's just like well this is happening accept it
2: you know y- you know when you put two eggplants together i think it almost forms a heart
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think you get a baby eggplant yeah what about when you get 500 at one time <laughs> over
0: <laughs> that's called a that's called a farmer's market <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. man well, uh, we got stories. We're gonna jump into this thing. We kind of felt like, are we are we calcifying our approach with uh, the way we're doing things? Where Jack has traditionally gone first, and then Canton and then me. So this time, we're gonna start with Jack.
2: He uh, caught me mid sip
1: of <coughs> my Niccolo Ultra, not sponsored. <laughs> so it's five o'clock somewhere. Ultra doing good. Yeah, I'm trying to lay off, making life changes. You just drink more. Yeah. <laughs>
2: All right, guys. Have you ever had a pet run away or, you know, just go missing on you up? You ever had a pet run away or go missing on you? Yes, two. Uh, I'll, I'll be brief.
0: Um, one time I was living in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, for anybody that lives in Springfield, Missouri, I lived kind of behind and down the to, to the left of the Sam's Club in Springsfield. Um. And we had a nice house. It was, it was, you know, brick house. It was great. Um, mom and dad, you know, were dealing with the other, uh, the, the six kids that they had had produced together. And, you know, so sometimes we were left to our own devices. We had a, a, go, a Cocker Spaniel named Goldie. And um, she was just, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like, I, I don't, I don't mind pets, but I never, I, I never like really bonded with an animal, you know. I never really bonded, and I don't know why. I love pets. I think they're they're great. But I, they, Goldie was just Goldie to me at that time in my life, and I was like maybe nine, uh, ten, maybe something like that. Anyway, my mom had registered me. It's Missouri, so there's a you know a little bit of a conservatism, traditional ways of doing things at the time in the eighties. So she signed me up for a cotillion. Do you know what a cotillion is?
2: Mm, I feel like I know, but is it like a a lot of cats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> also Like a like a catrillion? Like a, like a, catrillion. a
0: cat. <laughs> catillion <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes, it's that. Also, it is a thing where you can you 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 spend a handful of weeks preparing for this big dance. And what you do to prepare for it is you learn societal skills like how to uh, set a table, how to eat properly, like which fork to use and knife and fork and spoon. So as a child, you're you're kind of taught propriety, and then you're also taught to ballroom dance, like how to dance ballroom right and then the end the, the kind what? of the apex yeah the bait the apex of this whole thing is you're paired up with somebody <clears throat> and you show up then the day of and you have a like a tuxedo a cummerbund you know the whole nine yards and you you go to this cotillion and you have a dinner and then you do the you do the dancing with this partner and and i was like i said nine or ten so my mom signs me up for this and uh, it's close enough The the dance rehearsals and everything were right next to Sam's Club. So I go to Sam's Club for my rehearsals. I I walked a lot of the time to get there. But the day of the cotillion, I walked to, to the actual event. And my dog followed me all the way there. And so, you know, out of the neighborhood, cross streets and everything. But I couldn't get her to go home. I'm like, stop, go, go. I I was going alone. My mom and dad weren't dropping me off or anything. So I get there. Goldie's like right there. I can't let her in the building. So I'm just like, go. I went in. The mother of the girl that I was paired up with had decided to pair her up with another boy. So I did the whole cotillion by myself. I ate by myself and then I didn't really do the dancing cuz i didn't have a partner so it was not the best day of my life and then come to find out that goldie never made it home she didn't go back home and so it was um it was a hard day
2: oof all right kent <laughs> <laughs>
1: Still trying to figure out what kind of upbringing that op had where he was going to a a cotillion. never even heard of that. Are you royalty? Missouri royalty. That whole story was the widest stuff I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Was Jerry Seinfeld there? (laughs) Um, (laughs) One time I lost a four-foot ball python in my mom's house. She was Uh-oh. very upset. I fell asleep <laughs> holding it. I was like 11, 12 years old and woke up and it was gone. <laughs> and mom was very, very unhappy with me over that. And I found it, I don't know, like two days later under my bed. Was it alive? It was alive. It was very <laughs> much alive. And then another time, my friend growing up, my my good friend, Aura, was his name. We, uh, he had a hamster that we loved, and we lost it in his mom's house, and then we couldn't find it. And then two days later, it got hit by a car. Mm. Out in the, we found it in the road, and that's probably the only hamster that's ever died from being hit by a car. Nice. <laughs> we found it smashed in the road. And one time, I buried a puppy in a mason jar Oof. and dug it up two years later to see what it looked like.
2: Good God.
1: So. <laughs>
2: Why? Why did you bury a puppy in a mason jar? You probably It was
1: that. dead. It was stillborn. Okay.
0: Oh, my God. So I put it
1: in a mason jar, and then I buried it underneath a tree, and then I dug it up two years later because I was curious to what it, as to what it looked like. Okay. And it looks wow. like what you would imagine. Yeah. Mushy. Yeah, I wouldn't
2: bury a live puppy and then talk about it on here. Well, that's why I had to get you to confirm that. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll tell Mike. Are you done there? Yeah. Okay, thank God. And then one time uh, – <laughs> So I had this cat and we had a baby and then the cat started peeing all over the baby. So I took the cat and I put it outside and said, hey, you're an outdoor cat now. And I set up all this stuff for her in the garage, taking care of it. And then the cat was like disappearing. I where, where's the cat? Whatever. And my neighbor comes up to me after a couple of months of this cat being gone and goes, hey, do you know whose cat this is? And I look and she's holding our cat. I go, no, nah, no, nah, I've been feeding it, you know, like a little bit, but I don't I don't really know what cat cat is. She's, oh, I think I'm going to keep it. I'm like, yeah, you go ahead. I'll keep feeding it if it comes over here and you keep it. So my next door neighbor, they had a dog who had passed away at that time and they replaced it with my cat and she still doesn't <laughs> know it. She named it. Oh, God, this is a public podcast now, isn't it? Yes. So I'm not going to say what she named it just in case this gets back to her. Some. Oh, my God, I think I'm in trouble here. Anyways, <laughs> it, has a mic- it has a chip in it, like a microchip that has my name on it. And for the last, like, 10 years, I've been sweating whether or not she's going to take it to the vet and they're going to find out that my name is attached to this cat. But I basically <laughs> just kind of let the cat go to the neighbor. Oh. They call her Chi-Chi now. Real name is not Chi-Chi, but we laugh a lot. We call it Chi-Chi, and we're like, yeah. <laughs> You're taking care of our cat now. The pea cat.
1: <laughs> ah,
0: suckers. <laughs> hey, a uh, really quick before you tell your story. I don't know if you guys do this with your research, but the kind of research I do for the shows that I do, other than hugs like Nine One One Calls Podcast and those shows, I um I use some some special tools to like really dig in to like uh, I could look up any I I think I could find anybody and I could probably find dirt on anybody mm-hmm. based on the kind of tools that I use so Kent um'll we'll beep out his last name but I want to find out if I'm if I'm right I while Jack was talking I I opened one of my tools I thought I wonder how fast I can work I opened up my tools I put in your name and then I had to bounce from you to I think maybe another friend or associate that you have is the guy that you were talking about is his name or a top seeker information yes oh wow ha. Yeah.
1: <laughs> boom yes yes it is <laughs> isn't that creepy well done yeah that's super creepy <laughs> yeah uh, I mean it would be worse I if I was a female so.
0: <laughs> that's. I'm disturbed by my own skills <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, you guys ready to hear my story? Yeah. Don't look too deep into my situation here because, oh, God, you would be emailing my neighbor and ratting me out or something like that. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm pretty sure the uh, people listening are expected to hear maybe a story about a cat or a dog who got lost on a family vacation and found their way back home cross-country. And I consider telling a heart warmer like that. I even went so far as to write one, but it just felt a little too easy, a little too, like, I don't know, nice, or exactly what the operator is hoping to hear from me at this point. And so being uh, the little stinker, as Kent might say, of the group that I am, I know that Kent has said to me, you know, a little stinker in the past. I'm going to uh, share a story that I know to maybe be true that a friend of mine shared with me years ago. And because I know I can't be trusted at this point, I want to assure both the op and the audience that I won't be describing anything terrible that happened to a pet. It's just a very odd and maybe hug-worthy tale. This friend of mine had a grandmother that was going senile, and he loved her very, very, very much. It broke his heart to see her mental decline. He had taken on a big role in her life following the death of her husband, his grandfather, a few years previous, and had come to realize the more time he spent with her, the less her senility seemed so obvious. It was as if her loneliness was contributing to her mental decline. And though she had a caregiver and other family members that regularly checked in on her, he knew that she didn't care for the company of these people, that they annoyed her. He knew this because she told him this, and she told him this because she liked him and they had a connection. My friend was a lot like his grandfather, apparently. So when he spent time with his grandmother, it lifted her spirits. He made her laugh. He knew what she liked to talk about. He knew how she liked her tea. He knew when to just sit and watch TV with her in silence, never making unnecessary small talk because the silences are enjoyable between people who understand one another. He knew how to be a good companion to his grandmother. It was easy because as much as she seemed to be benefiting from his company, he too benefited from the time spent with his beloved grandmother but after a year or so of almost daily evening visits it started to get kind of weird he was spending all of his spare time with his grandma i mean a 24 year old man who works all day then heads over to grandma's place for dinner then stays to watch the wheel and then jeopardy is pretty much dating his grandma and that wasn't going to work out you know forever at least and he justified the commitment he was making by saying to himself well she's not going to live forever But she kind of did. I mean, for a guy to spend almost the entirety of his 20s hanging out with his grandma, which is what ended up happening, I think it's safe to say that she lived a lot longer than he thought she would. It turns out he was like a fountain of youth for his grandma. Her mental decline dried up with his consistent visits, and before he knew it, he was 30 years old. She was in her late 80s, and they were living together. Yeah, He spent so much time keeping his grandma company that it had made sense for him to move into her basement when he lost his job in his late 20s. And before he knew it, his 20s were over, and he'd spent them basically dating his grandma. (laughs) And this is where the cat comes in. He had a cat. Her name was Whiskey. A brownish, reddish, Norwegian forest cat. A beautiful cat. Long hair, sturdy, smart, friendly, expressive, almond-shaped eyes that is... Grandmother loved as much as my old friend did. It seemed that between this cat that was getting old and his grandmother, who was becoming ancient, he had his hands full when it came to being dependent upon by people, by animals. He worked days as a letter carrier. Yeah, he was a mailman. This kept him in shape as well as hopelessly alone. Women don't drag mailmen into the house as much as advertised, apparently. He played video games in the basement apartment when grandma was sleeping, and the rest of the time he hung up with his grandma and his cat, Whiskey. Now, I've left out a few personal issues that helped lead to this lifestyle. There was a rough breakup he went through. Also, his parents died tragically. And I almost started to laugh there for some reason, but they did. They, they died, and so he just had his grandma. And it's not my place to speculate or go into any of that at all. We don't even talk anymore, this guy and I, so I want this to stay somewhat vague. Though I doubt there's many stories like this where a mailman lives with his grandma and his cat. Though there may be more than, than I think, now that I think about it. Here's the thing. One day, my friend comes home from work and the house is silent. Normally, his grandmother is in the kitchen finishing up preparing dinner. Also, normally, Whiskey the Cat will come up and rub all over his legs like cats do, but none of this is happening, and it's immediately clear that something's wrong. He calls out for Grandma and gets no response. As he enters the living room, he sees Whiskey under the coffee table, looking at him as if scared of him, which isn't entirely odd. The cat would behave this way if it had done something bad like piss on the rug or get into the garbage, or if it was just plain scared, it would hide like this, which has him a little nervous now in this situation. He's asking himself, what's Whiskey, you know, so afraid of? Where's Grandma? And when he reaches his grandma's bedroom, it dawns on him. He already knows before he looks. And as he peeks in and sees her, it's confirmed she is dead, clearly dead dead dead. When an old person dies yeah, you can make your jokes about how old people look dead when they're walking, but when you see a dead old person, it's pretty clear. She's dead in her sleep there, a husk. She had likely died that afternoon while taking a nap. He calls for help. An ambulance arrives and they confirm her death. They take her away and uh, he's left in the empty house. It's upsetting obviously and he's searching for the cat now, but he never finds it. And because this is a true story, there's no nice little bow to wrap with here. I asked in the beginning if a pet has ever taken off on you, uh, and if my friend were here to answer that question, he would have told you this story. And I feel like he would include the part that he included when telling me about all this. He believed that whiskey had killed his grandmother. The cat had a habit of sleeping close to her, even on his face. He believed whiskey had accidentally asphyxiated his grandmother. Then, realizing in her way that something terrible had happened, had hidden under the coffee table, then probably ran out the door when the paramedics had come, as the door was left open for a period of time. Either way, he was suddenly without the two companions he'd revolved his life around. I met him at a group home where I worked at, uh, where he started working nights right around this time. I I was about to leave and move out west, and we met in a short interval there. He took the job based on his experience caring for his grandmother, which he missed Uh, once she passed and decided he wanted to work in the palliative care field. Anyways, I read in the paper that he was arrested for suffocating every resident in that house soon after, and I'm joking. I gotta say quickly, I'm joking because this is hugs. He didn't suffocate all the children in that place. That would make sense, but no. This is a true story. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, He's probably fine. Maybe the cat came back. I know for certain, Whiskey likely was a big part of his life going forward either way. Anyways, there's a dog barking behind me. Someone's mowing their lawn. Hugs, everybody.
1: Can't, can't, do you ever hear his lawnmower? I feel like sometimes Jack is in some dimension where people mow nonstop and the grass never gets cut. Like, maybe he's in hell. (laughs) Yes. And, because he always talks about mowers. I never hear mowers. He always talks about trains. I never hear a train. Do you hear the dog, though? Nope. (laughs) And I think Whiskey, I think that guy's probably dead because Whiskey came and finished what he had started. You know, it's (laughs) a really
2: heartwarming story about him hanging out with his grandmother and all that. And... I don't know man, I'm trying my best here. Uh what do you give what do you give me out of 10? Do you give me can you give me a rating out of a 10 on that one? You're doing great.
0: Oh, thank right you. Right now I'm giving you a 10.5 out of 10. I'm real I'm I'm loving this story. Stuck the landing. Yeah. Let's just stick yeah, stick that landing. Let's see how it goes. Okay. Cuz the landing is usually Well,
2: here's what's probably going to bring down your rating is that that the story's over.
0: Oh. Oh. Uh, I'm going to go. With, I'm still going to give you 10.5 because oh. I love you. Oh, thank you. I love you.
2: you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, anything you guys want to talk about uh, after that particular story? Do you think that
1: animals – so a big part uh, – well, it's not a big part. It's a part of Dr. Sleep is the cat being able to sense when the old people yes. are going to pass away.
2: Do you believe in that? Yes. I I believe it with cats and and not with dogs. Uh when I saw Dr. Sleep, I was like, yeah, <laughs> man, definitely. They they um we had cats in a lot of the homes where I worked at it was palliative care and, and we would have cats as companions and stuff and they one would one in particular would stand at the door as it was coming closer to death. There's something about cats, that's very like mystical, I feel.
1: Do you think maybe it's a scientific thing where when you get near when you start nearing death, you, your body starts releasing pheromones or or some specific kind of uh, chemical that they can smell, and the cats thinking like a meal might be coming. That a meal, yes. That fatty nose, it's possible. There's so many cases of cats eating their owners after they die.
0: <laughs> yes, they're like, yeah, they they can sense that the value meal, the number six value meal, large size is about to be delivered to their
1: front face. All right, so uh Op, have you are you afraid of flying you, how, what are your what's your outlook on flying do you like flying um, have you ever flown have yeah you ever done yeah uh, <laughs> i haven't done that you
0: know speaking of that though i might have done some things that i just didn't know i was doing did you ever do this like um i believe they call it like when you're a little kid and you're just like you know thinking it's cool so you like just roll up whatever you can find in your backyard into like paper and you smoke a barky (laughs) you know you just like roll up dead grass or bark off a tree and you light it up (laughs) and you huff in that smoke and you're like i I can see i can see why they are like this (laughs) like that have you ever done that
1: no no
0: we used to shoot our bb guns um and one time we were shooting shish kebab sticks out of our bb guns by the way very dangerous don't do that but the impact uh, the, the the I don't know the, cu- the the percussion of the of what was going on in the barrel made the barrel spit out of the gun you know red rider bb guns what what can you do because we had a uh, this empty metal tube we packed it full of like uh bark and stuff and then we lit the end and we're like, smoking it like uh like you know an in- like a first nations Pipe a barkey, And a, a barkey. yeah. Yeah, I think that's and, what they call it. <laughs> other than that, which I don't really think flew flew me too high, uh, yeah, I've done a lot of flying. And I've actually jumped out of airplanes, too, so I've done some skydiving. So you have no comms about it? Not really. Yeah, I, I know it's a 50-50 activity. You either live or you die. You know, there's yeah. not a lot of middle ground there. So you resign yourself to that fate, and uh, then you got
2: peace. Jack? I'm terrified. I don't even think I ever want to go on an airplane ever again. I took a flight to Cuba and back, and they put us in this Russian, I don't know, World War II bomber, (laughs) and lights were flickering. It was a nightmare. (laughs) And I don't think I ever want to go on an airplane again. The thing for me about airplanes, when I I speak to people about my fear of airplanes, they always say, Hey, you got more of a chance of getting in a car accident. Hey, but I have like a 100% chance of dying if the plane crashes, though, right? Like, (laughs) if the car crashes— I might survive, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe
1: the story that I'm getting ready to tell will make you feel a little I bit better wait. about that. Oh, I'm excited. Because <laughs> only 99% of them die. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> Hugs. I, uh, I The only time I feel claustrophobic is in an area. I've flown a lot, a lot. And uh, I don't have claustrophobia mm-hmm. at all, but I do start feeling claustrophobic claustrophobic. Having you've been on like in the air for some reason. You've been on like
0: C seventeen Globemasters and stuff like that though, right? I mean you've been on some big stuff.
1: Yeah, those don't bother I'm talking about passenger oh, okay. Like just for like, you know, airlines. Like going okay. on leave or something, you know, like going home. Yeah. Um the the big ones like that don't bother me because they're so big. And and the way you said in those is against the wall as opposed to lined up like cattle in I the see middle. But whenever I'm in, like, passenger planes, I always feel – I don't know. It's just something about being stuck in there with all those people sharing the same air 20,000 feet above the land. Can I add something there to to you, Kent?
2: And and I'll go forward without you confirming whether or not I can go ahead here. Is that I hate (laughs) being up in the air like that, and the only people that can protect me from all these strangers around me are these stewardesses. You know, like there's nowhere to go. I can't jump out the window if things – pop off. You're really at the mercy of everybody around you and their behavior and everything once you're up there. I I don't like that feeling. You're a prisoner. Yeah. You're held captive.
1: You are. And it's rude if you've got a problem to to do anything Mm -hmm. too. So it's like it's a weird social dance that you gotta play on a plane because if you're making somebody miserable, they can't leave and it's just it's a whole set of different rules up there. Society changes when you get into the air.
0: Airplane decorum is probably another social Analysis worthy of being done, sort of like the uh, shopping cart in the parking lot. You know, it's like it's a litmus test.
1: Yeah. If you're one of those people that takes their shoes off (laughs) and then puts them on the foot, on the hand rest of the person in Uh front of you, you're a swear word trick.
0: 100%. I don't know what that word means, but I, yeah, they're definitely. Didn't you have
1: to hold a crying baby for it during the duration of the flight? That was that Russian flight.
2: And. Thankfully, I had – well, it was uh, my girl's cousin who used to play in the majors as a relief pitcher, huge, like, muscly guy, and we're close. And he turns to me because he sees everybody looking back at me with the baby crying, and he taps me on the leg. He's like, don't worry. I'll take care of anybody who looks at you funny in this. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I got to worry about this guy just cleaning a house (laughs) because he's been drinking. (laughs) He's been drinking quite a bit. Suddenly you're a terrorist.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was just so stressful, man. I had, a, I had a baby throw up on me. Well, my son threw up on me. And uh, I pulled my shirt down and let him barf down the front of my shirt so that it wouldn't make so much of a mess. So I just sat with this sopping sweatshirt. I'm the type of guy who doesn't want to make a whole lot of problems happen for anybody else if they're my problem. I go so far as if I'm at the drive-thru at McDonald's. I'll pull away before they even give me the rest of the meal. They hand me the drinks. Okay, thanks. I'm gonna get out of this guy's way behind me. Uh sir. There's a bag. I'm the same way. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. <laughs> Working on it.
1: Somehow you feel like you're being the pr- swearing prick. Yeah. Again. That was for op. Even though you're not in yeah. Well, I'm calling this story uh twenty thousand leagues above the sea. Mm. It's interesting. And,
0: you, that's creative. And
1: this this plane was never at any point above the above the ocean. But so I guess 20,000 leagues above sea level. Our protagonist of this story is a young lady by the name of Juliana Kopka. She was born August 10th, or I'm sorry, October 10th, 1954. Now, her parents worked for the Museum of Natural History in Lima, Peru. Uh, And when she was 14, her parents decided to set up a research station in the Amazon rainforest. So she kind of has a very Indiana Jones upbringing. That's how I imagine Indiana Jones was raised. Very, she probably had. She was probably skilled with a whip, and not for traditional Caucasian reasons. Oh jeez! But <laughs> come on now, stirring butter.
2: <laughs> and we might cut that out. Well, not the op. No, that's funny. If everybody thinks like the op, stirring butter with that whip.
1: Yeah, that's how you get whipped cream.
2: So <laughs> okay.
1: So she has this this interesting uh, upbringing, but also one that makes you an interesting person. Probably a lot of fun to talk to, I, I would imagine, as an adult. And also highly intelligent. So for the next two years, from the age of 14 on, she was homeschooled. And she spends her time accompanying her family on trips to the Amazon rainforest. And it's here she learns insects, plants, animal identification. She pretty much becomes a... Not an expert because she's only, you know, this is between the ages of 14 and 16, but very knowledgeable in edible plants and and insects and animals. Now, she eventually returns to Lima, Peru to attend high school. And that's where she's at in December of 1971 when Maria, her mother, returns to Lima, Peru to fetch her daughter and bring her back to the rainforest at the research station that, that, that her parents had set up to visit her father for Christmas. She's 17 years old at the time. So the date is now December 24th, 1971, and they take a Lanza flight, and that was Lanza flight 508 from Jorge Chavez International Airport. Now Lanza Airlines at this time had an extremely poor safety record, and I don't mean to victim blame. Uh, and, and I don't know if you listen to other podcasts, but anytime somebody says "I don't mean to victim blame," they're getting ready to start <laughs> really heavily victim blaming. <laughs> it's gonna that's, it's it's the same thing as when somebody goes, "I don't want to." I don't mean this to sound yeah. racist. They're getting ready to drop some really racist bombs. Yeah, or they're, bless her heart, like yeah. they
0: just ripped into a person <laughs> and then they said, "Bless her." That's where I start perking up in the story. So I'm I'm really tuned in right now.
1: So. Lanza Airlines was it was heavily heavily documented. Their their flight record. Uh, maybe even more people died than survived their flights with Lancer Airlines, uh, and this—it's uh, uh, no secret. I feel like at this point, this oncoming plane crash actually bankrupted them, and they went out of business after this one. Anyways, Maria, Juliana's mom, and Juliana are flying in a Lockheed L one eighty eight A Electra turboprop, and this is a a passenger plane that can carry ninety eight passengers. It's the kind that has the dual the dual propellers on each on each. Wing right, yeah. It's kind of like a bomber almost, but a pa- uh, a, a passenger bomber. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So thirty five minutes into the flight, they hit a thunderstorm, and the and the crew of the of the flight they want to push on because it's the holidays and you got to get the, these families to, to home for Christmas. So they keep pushing, and they also work for Lanza Airlines. So that's probably protocol here. They push on, and they hit a thunderstorm. They push through it. They hit heavy turbulence, and at this point, luggage and Christmas presents start falling from the overhead compartments. People are screaming. People are crying. The plane's shaking. And uh, this happens occasionally when you're on flights, but uh, for these people, uh, unfortunately, this is the big one. Because soon after, Lightning strikes the right wing of the plane and ignites one of the fuel tanks, blowing a hole in the side of the plane.
0: I just want to make sure I got things. Lightning struck the right Wing, what's what? Which, which one's the, that?
1: The the
0: I'm just trying. I'm, I've got I drew a picture of a... The right plane, right? The here. Right, right wing rot. The right, right? Okay, all right. Wing duly noted. I'm just gonna put a check mark on that wing of the plane. Rot wing equals right. And wing. that okay,
2: gotcha ignited the fuel <laughs> tank. Sorry, okay, proceed. which blew a hole in the side mm. of the plane. What a nightmare when the guy with the accents. Criticizing the guy with the accent. Right. Tell me about
1: it. <laughs> One time, side story. One time I was asking a stranger, uh, back when I was smoking cigarettes, if he had a lighter. I was like, hey, hey. And he looked at me like I was the biggest dipshit that had ever walked the face of the earth. And he was like, why would I have the-? I was like, I mean, it's a lighter. It's it's pretty standard, people. I mean, this is 2000, at the time, 2010. Everybody's still smoking cigarettes. No offense, Jack, and old school. A holdout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's no quitter. And uh, turns out, what he thought that I was asking him is the stranger just runs, bumps into a guy, thought I was asking him if I, if, if he had a ladder,
2: <laughs> like aluminum or wood. What do you need, man? Eight foot, twenty foot.
1: Hey, do you just so happen to have something on you that I can climb several <laughs> floors? It's hanging
2: out of his back pocket. <laughs> he actually pulls yeah, it up. It I'm a painter, actually. Yeah.
1: Now Maria, Juliana's mom right before the the hole blows in the side of the of the plane says and this is good reassurance for her daughter right who it's your role as a protector as the parent to keep your keep your keep your scared child safe and, and calm she just goes well that's it this is the oh. end oh goodness <laughs> right after she says that the plane disintegrates into hundreds of pieces midair at this point they were 10,000 feet above sea level Or two miles, just under two miles. I think it was, I did the math, 400 feet under two miles. No haystacks down there, I'm assuming. No haystacks, just forest. Rainforest, by the way. They're over Peru. Middle of nowhere, Peru. The plane rips to pieces midair. And now Juliana, little 17-year-old Juliana, is is free-falling, still strapped to her three rows of seats. She's the only one in this row. She's in the middle. And spinning like a helicopter blade, free-falling to the ground. She says at one point that she looked down and and it looked like green cauliflower that she was falling towards. But she kept going in and out of consciousness, probably between fear and and adrenaline and altitude changes, I would imagine. Something like... She stayed buckled in, which is good. She rode that chair all the way to the ground like Lane Frost. And... (laughs) So like I said, she free fell 10,000 feet, just under two miles. And uh, several hours later, she wakes up in the rainforest, wet, muddy, and alone. She then crawls underneath the row of plane seats that she had rode to the ground, gets into the fetal position, and slips in and out of consciousness for the remainder of that evening, that night, and into the morning the next day. So she's in and out of consciousness for about 19 hours. It's no secret at this point, she is the only survivor of this plane crash. The next morning, she pulls herself to a sitting position and kind of gets an inventory check of her appendages. They are all there. Her neck, though, shoulder and ankle are all in really bad pain, and she has a huge gash on her right arm, and her left eye is also swollen shut. The only thing she was wearing was a tattered, sleeveless mini dress and one sandal, and uh, she had poor vision. She was nearsighted. Her glasses had been knocked off in the plane wreck as well, so she's Pretty much like half blind, I would say. Uh, she's got one sandal and she's in a tattered dress and she's in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. So, so this is just a lot of fun. This is like Alone Season One, only there's no cash reward at the end of this. Uh, she gets to her feet and starts calling for Mama. Mama doesn't answer because she's dead. <clears throat> Mother is dead. She she had actually she had, she had died. She didn't survive. Hugs. After hearing nothing in return, she starts drinking water from surrounding leaves. I wouldn't call her a survivalist, but knowledgeable in the rainforest because of her parents. She's actually built for this, kind of. Like I said, like kind of a young Indiana Jones. Uh, We're going to find out in the next uh, 11 days that young Juliana is a real, real bad mofo. And I can't use curse words, but she's hardened. I'm going to be a lot more hardened after this. This is a tough lady. I would like to say that the, at this point that the
0: hymns that come up in my head, it's like Tourette's. You don't know how often it goes off in my in my brain. And I appreciate you guys because I never really said this, but I don't like hymns. So <laughs> thanks for keeping the hymns from bursting into my brains every time you guys.
1: I'll try to fix that. I'll try to not say swear. any wordy dirties for the rest of the story. So she starts drinking water from the surrounding leaves. She also discovers in the wreckage a bag of candy. Now, she was only she she had only landed near a portion of the plane, a small portion. Uh, she couldn't find the rest of the plane. She th- she knows that she's kind of screwed here, uh, and she just sucks it up. She's like, yeah, I'm busted up pretty bad, but I got to do something. So she takes off her remaining flip-flop and makes her way into the forest. Now, the reason she takes her flip-flop off is her flip-flop, her flip flippity floppity <laughs> off is she uses it as a as a poking stick almost for, for camouflage snakes because she's pretty aware of the animals that are in this uh, because of her family. So what she does mm. she takes this flip-flop. She throws it a few feet in front of her to, like, startle snakes, camouflage snakes, spiders, whatever it may be. And that's how she makes her, her way through the forest for the rest of the time. Wow. Until she finds water. A few feet at a time, throwing a flip-flop. Barefoot, mind you. And also being absolutely blanketed in mosquitoes, flies, and insects. And I, whenever I say blanketed, I mean uh, there is a video on YouTube of her going back to this wreckage uh, in the early 2000s. And she's showing what she means by that. She holds out her hand at one point, and there is, I'm not kidding you, probably five or 600 different insects just on her hand, one hand. Oh, it's just geez. covered. It's like almost unfathomable how many bugs are crawling on you. Most of them mosquitoes and flies and so this is her her situation. She's throwing a shoe in front of her in the middle of the rainforest. Uh all throughout this endeavor she can hear uh rescue planes uh flying overhead but they can't see anything because of the density of the the you know the forest ceiling. Mm. So help is like right there but they can't help her cuz they can't see her. Uh, After a few hours of walking through the rainforest barefoot, she comes upon a small stream and she knows from her parents' teachings that this will eventually lead to a river, which will hopefully lead to civilization. Because that's what people do. We build near water sources, especially in in, uh, those unfortunate countries like this. Now, for the next day, she follows the stream. Uh, That night, she sleeps under a log, still getting eat up with insects. Unfortunately, that night... The insects will, uh, or not the insects, flies will lay eggs in her arm wound, a large gash that she had on her arm, uh, that would oh, soon start breeding maggots. So geez. maggots are now festering in her in her arm gash, and the following morning she gets up, continues her journey anyway because this isn't a normal a normal human being. This is a she may not physically have the the rough skin that we were just talking about, but mentally she has it. So she continues her journey downstream before hearing what she knew to be, because of her teachings, a king vulture. And when she comes into the clearing where the king vulture is, she comes upon the tail end of the aircraft. Upon inspection, she finds three rows of seats, a few feet from what remained of the aircraft, with three dead people still strapped in them, two men and one woman. She still didn't know what became of her mother. And because they had landed, the people in these seats had landed headfirst and Buried into the ground, almost two feet, like Looney Tune characters. She couldn't see their heads, so she just saw the bodies sticking out, strapped into these this three this row of three seats sticking out. Uh, she so she takes a stick. She she wants to make sure that this woman isn't her mom. She takes a stick. She pushes the shoe off of the woman and sees that uh, this woman's toenails are painted, and that's not her mom. Her mom doesn't paint her toenails. And so that she got a probably got a sigh of relief there. And this wasn't in the stories anywhere, this part that I'm getting ready to say, but she probably stood around there being a young teenager and poked the corpses with the stick for a little while longer. Uh, I would imagine. Just I was going to say, she probably she probably threw the flip flop at them, you know? Yeah, threw flip, the flip flop at them, you know, threw rocks at their forehead. Well, their foreheads were buried literally into the ground. So just poked them with sticks. Yeah. Probably. You got to keep. Took the guy's hand and put it like this and made him like look like he was,
2: you know. <laughs> Doing stuff. Teenage mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, you got to keep your spirits up any way you can out there. I'm sure she
0: did all. You do. You do.
2: Yeah, whatever for a, for a giggle.
1: Yep. She continues about her trip through the rainforest, slowly stumbling for the next few days. So she's stumbling, walking down the stream for days. On the sixth day, she's been in the barefoot. At this point for six days, barefoot, getting eaten alive by bugs. She hasn't ate anything but the candy, the bag of candy that she found at the crash site. And she's drinking water from leaves. But on the sixth day, she finally comes upon a large river. But when she when she gets on it, there's no signs of human anywhere in sight. Just more rainforest with a huge river running through it. And so she starts making her way down the river. But unfortunately, the banks of the river were too overgrown with vegetation to make to, to walk on. So she just wades out waist deep into the river and uses that as her path. Because it's the path of least resistance. Unfortunately, Mm. she soon comes upon dangerous stingrays. And because of her knowledge, she knows that stingrays don't go into the deeper parts of the water. So she gets out into the middle of the river, says to hell with stingrays, gets into the middle of the river, and just kind of like half swims, half floats down the river. And she does occasionally come across piranhas and caimans. And a caiman is just a, a brand of crocodile. Not a crocodile. I'm sorry, an alligator. Cayman is an alligator. It's like, you know, you could say a car or a vehicle, but then you say a Chevrolet or a Ford. That's what, that's what we're doing here. A Cayman is just a brand, a brand of alligator. She's starving to death and she's getting picked on by piranhas and this, uh, this brand of alligator. Maggots are festering in her arm when she does for the next couple of days. For the next couple of days, she does this half swimming, half floating because she's badly injured, very weak. Down the river, and at night time, she would crawl up on the bank to sleep. She also starts drinking the river water, which I'm sure is good for you. I didn't do any research, but I don't don't think I have to on that.
0: Nah, it's good. I think
1: Amazonian uh, rivers are probably crawling with bacteria. I would imagine that give you the squirts. I think that's where you get LaCroix, the the canned water. I think that's
0: why it tastes like it does. I would it, imagine that's um,
1: why that's where Dasani gets their water because Dasani is way worse than LaCroix. I think Dasani translates to
0: stingray
1: too. <laughs> Pretty sure. Um, is this a stingray? This song. On the 10th day, she crawled up onto the bank to take a nap. Uh, she was wore out. And and that when she wakes up, she realized that she had, in her confusion, fallen asleep next to a boat, and there was a path going into the jungle right there where she had crawled upon the bank. Now she probably was in a in a fog, mental fog. I would imagine she's starving to death. She's also probably uh, got a million different infections going on. However, just to let you know the kind of character that this young lady had, despite how in bad a shape she is. She doesn't take the boat because she didn't want to steal it because it belonged to somebody else.
2: Aw. <laughs> Come on. It's pretty
1: incredible. Yeah, it is. Incredibly stupid. <laughs> you know for a <laughs> fact that this young lady returns the cart. Yes. The path, however, that she found through the tree lines, uh, even though it was only a, a few hundred meters, it took her hours to get to the end of it. And at the end of that path was a small, unoccupied straw hut and a couple of gu- jugs of gasoline. Now, thinking of something she once saw her father do to get worms out of a kitten, she took the gasoline and started pouring it on her maggot-infested arm wound. And the maggots started pushing themselves out of this. Uh, something about the gasoline pulls maggots out, I guess. But it works. It gets the maggots out of her arm. She, the the Like I said, the small hut was unoccupied. She lays down inside of it, and she sleeps for a few hours. In the middle of the night, she wakes up. the The floor of this hut was hard and uncomfortable so she gets up she goes back down to the path and sleeps in the sand beside the bank we're now on day 11 it is day 11 she has survived for 11 days with Jeez. very serious wounds and injuries after free falling two miles to the earth this young lady it is the morning of day 11 she makes her way back to the empty hut and she says i'm gonna take a break for the day she's gonna take the day off I'm take the day off take a breather She lounges around there like a lazy ass. Swear word. Until evening. Sorry, you got to beep that out there. Swear word. She lounges around there until evening. And early that evening, three Peruvian lumberjacks come out of the woods. And that sounds like the beginning to a bad joke. Yeah, it does. They're like like nice axe wound. (laughs)
2: Right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Three Peruvian lumberjacks just bust out into the path there. Next to the hut, and they discover Juliana. One of them is immediately convinced that she's a water goddess, popular with that culture, called a Yamanja.
0: Naturally.
1: And that's because because a Yamanja, and this is true, in their culture, is a half-dolphin thing that is a a white lady with blonde hair. And that describes Juliana. But uh, she's probably a lot, he's probably like, that Yamanja, the Yamanja is a lot scarier. And I thought it was going to look. I didn't picture it having maggots. I got to. Anyways, so they uh, she's had a hard day. She's had a hard 11 days. She's just been discovered by these three Peruvian lumberjacks. They get scared and they they bash her head in with an axe and they and they kill her.
2: Oh, man, I was I'm relieved because my story ended so abruptly. I'm glad that yours did, too.
1: It did. No, that didn't happen. No, they didn't kill her. They didn't kill her. The three Peruvian lumberjacks treat her wounds, give her food and then they load her up into the boat the next morning and started the seven-hour ride back to civilization. From there, a pilot flew her to the nearest hospital. They discover she has a torn ACL, a broken collarbone, and a fractured shin. The next day, she was reunited with her father, who tells her her mom's dead, and then she's interviewed by the Air Force and the police, where she directs them to the crash site. Turns out 91 people died in total, six crew members, 85 passengers. Hey. afterwards, she and her father moved to Germany where she makes a full recovery, 100 percent recovery. This is a hard woman, hard, tough woman. She makes a full recovery. She doesn't let this bad plane experience. We've all had a bad experience with airlines. She doesn't let this one ruin her idea of the of the forest because she also gets a Ph.D. in zoology, uh, much like Steve Irwin's son. You know, you see him gallivanting around there on the YouTube in his dad's clothes <laughs> Holding alligators (laughs) whatever
2: and something like that I think both of those those kids avoid stingrays now yeah (laughs) hell for sure he couldn't wear a sleeve of his father's shirt (laughs) is
0: that like he couldn't he couldn't fit into his shoes is that what you're saying like he couldn't fill the shoes of his father something like Like that that. yeah
2: I don't know where we're headed right now this is one big edit I'm just feeling bad for the operator at this point (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: she gets a PhD in zoology. She excels in school. Very bright, very bright woman. Highly intelligent. Juliana is still alive today, and she is doing well. She is now sixty-six years old, and a librarian in Germany, and and knows a lot about animals and hooks. oh she's still alive. That's amazing. So was she? She was the only survivor. Only survivor. wow and probably i haven't looked this up but i would also imagine she probably holds the guinness world record for longest free fall to survive yeah
0: yeah for sure
2: somehow man that's amazing Uh, france france lack might have that my croatian guy might have that but oh he has a lot of records that can't be (laughs) substantiated
1: substantiated yeah yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. she's telling this story to him in a bar he's like yeah i did that i did that i did that yeah I was a woman. I'm a woman. I was actually on that flight. You thought it was stingrays, but I was just tickling your feet in the river. That was me. Well, to the people that, that are wondering how she could survive that fall, um, I read that one of the things that helped her was that the plane seat, she was stuck in the middle of three seats, right? A row of seats. They were spinning mm-hmm. like a helicopter blade. So that probably, so she was spinning. That's probably also, uh, is also what contributed to her going in and out of consciousness, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that helped. And then probably hitting the canopy of the forest, the very thick, dense canopy probably slowed down our descent uh, to the ground, I would imagine. When you said she landed,
0: all I could see in my head was, you know, that scene from the original Alice in Wonderland when she falls down and and then she like lands. She's like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, on a tuffet somewhere. (laughs) I figured that's, like you know, that's what I pictured. No dead bodies around and stuff. Just toof on a tuffet. and then there's like a little worm next to her. It's like, who are,
1: are you? Well, I guess I can. Uh, I, I'm glad I, I could end it on a hug, but there's also a hug at the end of this. I guess that would be you would need out of sadness. Uh, they did later discover when they went to the back to the plane crash site that 14 other passengers had actually survived the the crash itself, <sighs> but had then. Later, over the next few days, succumbed to their wounds, and her mother was one of them. And, oh,
2: no, man. oh man, and they all had flip flop uh, imprints on their foreheads. <laughs> a lot of jokes yep. about all these dead bodies here. <laughs> that was a, fun. That was There's a really a good. That was a really good story.
1: This like happened that in one. 1971, though, so I think we're allowed. Yeah, that's old enough, right? Oh yeah, it all goes in the seventies. But my hug hug for this story is that she survived. She made a full recovery. She was very uh, successful in life, very happy. And there's a bunch of interviews that you can watch with her on on the YouTubes. I'm definitely going to do that.
0: All right. Well, I have a story for you and a question to start with this story. I'll start with um, Kent. Kent, have you ever tried to use your evil skills for good? In your life, in any way?
1: Uh, uh, like what skills? What evil skills? Mm.
0: Pick an evil one. One that you think you're like, I have a skill, but it's evil. But, and have
1: you ever tried to use that skill for good? This is the most confusing question I have ever. I'm done. glad you're going first. Yes. I don't got it. <laughs> evil skill. I mean, a, a, if it's a skill, then it's not inherently it's not evil by nature. It's just okay. If you have a skill, but you've you've typically historically used it for
0: evil, have you ever been like, you know, what I could do good with this, and then you tried to do something good with it? <laughs> I, I feel like this isn't
2: docking. <laughs> it's pretty bad, Jack. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean i I can't even I can't even help you here. I can't even help you. I have I have things I'm going to say that he'll have to edit out the whole way because they're all jokes when it comes to, like, I, I, can't, I won't <laughs> even say it. Let me think. I feel like I could be pretty ma- manipulative, um, oh, okay. you know, <clears throat> to, to, to get my way, but I guess I've been able to manipulate my way in a way that I've manipul- manipulated somebody into uh, doing something for the good. You know, this is really hard. This is really hard. Um I'm gonna I'm gonna send it to Kent. Kent, you go first. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> how about I go first? I'll go first.
0: You go first. Here, to give you give you an example. <laughs> so before I was married, I cracked software. I used to crack software. And, like, so when you crack software, basically you're releasing the license or the requirement to have a serial number or anything like that. And I used to crack software because when you do that, you kind of find a community of of hackers, crackers, you know, people like that. Not white people, just, you know, crackers, like people that, you know, crack software. And I'd found this community. And so we used to communicate through something called IRC, which was like a software chat from uh the days when it it looked like just typewriter writing there was no graphics anyway this one time uh in a in a moment of weakness uh this guy messaged me directly and was like hey i have a mountain of laptops that i've gotten and uh the, he kind of came across as another kind of maybe you know somebody who was willing to kind of sk- skirt the social norms so i thought he was reaching out to me like, hey, let me share the wealth. And he was like, I, I, I've i gotten my hand on all these brand new Dell laptops. If you want to buy some, I'll sell them to you for this much. And I was like, oh, that's a pretty good deal. So I committed to buying 10 laptops from this guy. And, you know, we're we're both kind of in the hacking community. At the time, you know, a very secure way of of, of paying for stuff would have been Western Union. In the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, this is sketchy because – he could just rip me off because Western Union's notorious for that. But I was like, hey, eh, you know, I'm going to take a risk. So I took a risk. He ripped me off. Uh, he didn't have laptops. But so I got really mad and I ended up um, trying to uh, find him. So through this IRC, you could find people's IP addresses, like where they're located. And so I just sat on IRC for several days and waited for his, his uh, nickname uh, to come up. As he was logged in, once he was logged in, I ran a bunch of traces on him and found his IP address, found out that he was doing all this from a computer lab at a school in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania. So I contacted the IT department there and uh, at, long story short, I used my the skills I had honed as a, as a crack, software cracker to take down what I thought was just going to be this one guy, but he was actually part of a ring of criminals that were... Ripping people off, making money, you know, trying to sell fake goods, and uh, that was kind of rewarding, you know. So, that's you know, it's crazy about did. your
2: question and your answer to your question. I believe you've told that story before on nine one one, but you told
0: I think I have. Now that I think, and about the question
2: it. was tailored directly to your own answer, prepared answer.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was really think.
1: difficult. <laughs> the only thing that I can think of is I have a. I had an ability in high school to, to figure out which teachers were easily able to get them sidetracked and go on a tangent about something not related to what we were talking about and being able to <laughs> crack a joke that would get them to do that and then being able to later <laughs> use that to distract people during hard times in, in their That's life. That's a good one.
0: <laughs> That's fun. Jack, I've got, I'm going to tee sure. you up on one. I, I think I – okay. So you've, you've had um, – You've you've you have experiences in in drugs dr- dealings of drugs, not drug, not that you're a drug <laughs> dealer, but you have dealings with drugs it, or the drugs type of category, sure. Uh, in that, in that, you know, I'm sure how do you use that for good? I know. Well, okay, did I'm you ever there. lace
1: anything with fentanyl and then hand it to somebody that you knew was a pedophile?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I meant was in your drugs world. Did you ever know somebody who was a uh, like the muscle you know and and was there ever a time where you're like this guy is a terrible guy over here I really am going to use my network of people to to take down somebody that really deserves being taken down have you ever have you ever had well, that have that's ever, still in all in
2: the realm of that same situation though so yes no I have had those guys in my life but the way I implemented them was in the manipulate in, yeah uh was in the uh process of making sure we got some money back or something like that but that's that's using evil for evil okay good no but thanks for trying i'll tell you one i mean i i remember watching (laughs) um like a movie and oh god well if you break into a house and you don't want to get your hand hurt you can put a bunch of tape on the glass and punch through the tape and then the all the glass will stick to the tape Uh uh-huh that's a safe way for you not to hurt your hand if you're breaking into a house or a car, but I don't have a positive on that. I'm sorry.
0: You just shared a, a skill that we can now communicate to our, our audience of thousands so just <laughs> on, on how to uh, break into cars. I okay. think the best this example
1: of this question that I could come up with is I read an article once that a, a, a house thief broke into a house, and inside the house he discovered child pornography, and then he went to the police station – and reported himself. He's like, hey, I was breaking into this house, but Whoa. this guy has child pornography. Cool. And then he reported. That's a hero as far as Me I'm too. concerned.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay. Okay. See, okay. I feel like we've come full yeah. circle. Jack trained up the uh, future r- r- regime of criminals. <laughs> Kent brought a story. I, was, I, I, I basically baked the question. Uh, Into my answer. Uh, I feel like this, this, you know, we did, we turned this around, guys.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. Worst hugs episode
0: ever. (laughs) Easily. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay. Here's my story. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh. See, usually I keep the name until the very end and I kind of drop it on you. This time I'm bringing it right out in the front. Charles Lindbergh made the first and ever most famous solo transatlantic flight. He garnered acclaim for his accomplishments and a significant amount of attention five years later, tragedy struck when Charles and Anne's baby was kidnapped. We all know the story. And similar to the speed at which information travels today through social media, within no time at all, the news of the Lindbergh baby had reached every corner of the globe. It permeated daily conversation, it riveted a nation, and it rocked parents all over the world. Who could kidnap a baby and who would go after such an amazing man's family like this to cause such tragedy? These are the exact sympathies of a man who heard the news as he sat in a jail cell as a first-time offender. As a non-violent first-time offender and a family man himself, he couldn't bear the thought of losing one of his own children. He was so motivated by this terrible occurrence that he got up the courage to speak with the warden of the jail. He said, quote, "...it's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard of. I know how my wife and I would feel if my son was kidnapped, and I sympathize with the Lindberghs. I wouldn't want any favors, but I would be willing to do anything I can for that baby." This was met, as you would expect, with a bit of incredulousness by the managers of the jail. They weren't about to let a prisoner go free so that he could help find a baby. But this inmate had an idea. He reached out to his brother, who was not in jail. In fact, his brother had zero criminal record at all, whatsoever. So he convinced him that if the jail would agree to let him go and help find the baby that his brother, the non-criminal, would come stay in his place as a captive, as collateral, until he finished his search and returned to the jail to be re-imprisoned. By this point, word had reached reporters outside of the jail of the inmates' offers. Some wrote about it in mocking tones, as if a criminal could be trusted to do such a thing. Others questioned whether setting someone like that free would even move the needle in the search. But other reporters, on the other hand, supported the idea. They knew the history of the man, and they felt like he might actually be able to help. The people of the town heard about the offer, and many of them withholding their concerns for letting a criminal loose on the streets, thought similarly, that any and all who thought they could help should be allowed to do so after all if he didn't return to jail he'd be leaving an innocent man locked up and when he was finally caught again he'd be in more trouble than ever and as a first-time offender his sentence would have been greatly increased by such a deed ultimately the offer was squashed by the jail's people the final words in closing by the decision makers were posed as a question really though they said what could it do Shortly after they uttered those words, the Lindbergh baby was found deceased. Alongside that, a growing fervor of frustration grew amongst many, aimed at the jailers for declining the inmates' chance to help. They said, he could have found that baby before the cops. One comment, another proclaimed, that baby would be alive today and we would have our hero criminal back behind bars and the world would be right if you just let him help. So much strong opinions, so much support for a man. Though convicted of a nonviolent offense, was indeed a convicted felon. But you see, this felon, though a first-time offender, had amassed an army of crooks. He'd built a network of nefarious. His influence was not just in the hometown of Chicago, but stretched worldwide. And to catch a snake like that one that killed the Lindbergh baby, many believed that the fastest approach would be to send out more snakes. To let the reverberations of this criminal's actions be felt by those who were closest to his dark world, people that were just like him. These people, criminals in their own right, but directed by this one man sitting in a jail cell. You see, many believed that Charles Lindbergh's baby could have been saved had the jailers conceded to allow this army to march to work for once on a cause that everybody could get behind. Every enlisted focused. Their crimes set aside for a moment, with their ears to the underbelly of society, listening for anything that could tip off the location of a little baby, returning and reporting their news through a network that led back to one man, a man named Al Capone.
2: I didn't see I didn't see that coming at all. Thanks. That's cool, man.
0: That was fun. First time offender, who knew? You know, when he was put in jail, that was the first time he had ever
2: been convicted of wow. anything. Wow. Good stuff. Did, did did Kent calcify into like a Kentucky biscuit or something like that? Is he okay?
1: <laughs> He's just sitting there with a smile on his face. <laughs> I was just thinking how I like how Op front loaded the story with, uh, see, I gave the name right away <laughs> Lindbergh, baby. Lindbergh. We're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably my favorite story you've brought up. Really? yes Thank you. Yes. Oh. Wow. That was a good Thanks. one. That was a good one. Um yeah, thank you very much. The hug is a very sad hug. Very sad. Yeah, it is a sad hug. But you know, and and
0: it's an interesting social dilemma too. Everybody knew about Al Capone and everybody knew what he had done and you know, there were some people that were like, "Hey, okay, you know, this guy's my guy." But the majority of people are like, this guy This guy needs to go. But the moment his network could be used for good, people are like, maybe we need to give this a shot, yeah. you know? So it's
2: interesting. Very. I like how Kent said that was his, your, his favorite story of yours, and he said that last time too, which leads me to believe, if we're being yeah. honest with each other as a crew, <laughs> that he doesn't like any of your stories. And that was one that he found just a little bit palatable. You know, he kind of liked it.
1: Yeah, I did enjoy that. I did enjoy that one. I was curious when you, when I realized this was going to be about the Lindbergh baby, because Mm. I know how that's, everybody knows how that story is. Like, how are we going to, how are we going to twist this one? How are we going to (laughs) twist? Yeah, how's this going to, oh, and then it's like, oh, it's about Al Capone. Everybody loves Al Capone. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Scarface. Yeah, to your point, Jack,
0: uh, either we know that, uh, Kent hates them all or his his taste is just really muted and everything is his favorite and it instantly gives me a picture of like him as a uh, like a teenager sitting in front of a 7-Eleven and his quote-unquote best yeah. friends. Like one has a, like a lazy eye and yeah. <laughs> you know, another one has just scabies. Yeah. So, you know. It, remind, <laughs> he's it pretty reminds accurate. me. Cream of the crop. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Anytime I have somebody telling me a story where it's gone on and I'm kind of like, okay, and then it finally ends, when I say, yeah, I like that, what I'm saying is, I like that that's over. <laughs>
0: Did you feel that way about this one?
2: Was I was
1: I, was I was I getting
2: long I in the tooth? No, he didn't either. I'm sure okay. that was a good one. No, it no. was
1: a good one. I think actually, lengthwise, I was probably the most long winded this this episode. <laughs> I was losing it a little bit in there. I, I
0: wrote it. I'm going to give away a little bit of my secret sauce right now, but uh, the story arc, as we c- would call it, you know, where you hide the. The person's name, or the, the 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 big amazing thing. So the story arc that I've been using, I'm ripping from a guy who used to have a show called The Rest of the Story.
1: I thought you were gonna say lore, <laughs> by Aaron Mankey, because that's how he does every single.
0: <laughs> I don't want to get sued, so I don't I don't rip him off. But uh, Paul Harvey was the guy that would do the rest of the story, and it was. You know, in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And he was like, and that's the rest of the story. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> what it did is it made me believe, hey, this story arc could be used for any story. You know, and so I'm I'm venturing out. I'm trying, going to try venturing out and making my own. So over the next several episodes, you'll have to let me know if I'm doing well because I'm going to try to hone my skills. Oh, I'm loving it.
2: I like the way it goes with me stumbling out of the gates, and then Kent kind of leveling us out, and then you finishes off with with something, uh, you know, with a little more robust. It's uh, I I enjoy the podcast. We'll see what the reviews say, but. I think it's going to do well. I hope it does well. I'm glad you
0: like it because uh, w- w- you're on it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I like it.
2: <laughs> I hope it tanks. How about
1: you, Kent, on a scale of <laughs> 9 to 10? A scale from 9 to 10 of, of this podcast or your yeah. story? I feel like
0: I've I've garnered enough praise on my stories uh, in awards and reviews from you in the last five minutes. So on the podcast in particular.
1: So I'll, I this is my favorite podcast to record. All jokes aside. Oh, fun. I love it. Cool. I love it because I get to hang out. It's all of us getting to hang out together. And because yeah. we're always so busy with our own, you know, Jack's doing Dark Topic. You're you're doing 911 calls. I'm doing TCK. And then we do get to come together occasionally to do a Brutal and you and him come together to do Dark Calls or whatever. But we don't get to do this very often. Aside from Marco. It's true. It's true. Uh, it's usually me communicating with Jack or me communicating with you or, or and vice versa, you with him or you with me. Um, so that's one of my – and it's also – this is really easy to write for, this podcast is, which is why yeah, people are probably seeing that we're releasing these at a higher rate. than It's because TCK, Dark Topic, 911 calls, those take so much more research and writing, mm. uh, and, and and this is a lot easier. To, so, yeah, you will see these come out at a higher rate than all those other podcasts, and I like that. It's fun. It's easy, and uh, and I think it's good content.
0: I think in my whole life, 45 years now, I've never been one to really succumb to peer pressure. But this is the closest I've gotten is like, I know you guys are both going to come with a story and it's going to be a good story. So I feel pressure to come with something really good, you know, and and do it on time, which I don't do anything on time.
1: And you will eventually do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) On that note,
0: hugs drawer. Anybody got a hug for the hug drawer?
2: (laughs) I I have a podcast, and I need Kent to say it. Do you know what it's called, Kent? It's called... (laughs) That's spooky. (laughs) It is. And I've been really enjoying this podcast. I believe they're with the Morbid Network, but that's spooky is um, a couple of, of gay men who are talking about true crime, and they they make they're super flamboyant and well researched and really really funny. Uh, nobody makes me laugh as much as like a really funny gay guy. Like they just let it. They they say whatever the hell they want, get away with all kinds of stuff, and are sharp and witty and all that. And these guys are that to a T. Uh, that spooky is similar to the Hugs podcast, and that both hosts kind of come with a story and they surprise each other with their story, and it's all in the realm of true crime. And uh, usually it's 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 pretty spooky. So check out that spooky. And uh, a, f- a listener of eleven fifty nine. I'm sorry, I don't have your name. Is the one who turned me on to it, but uh, they have quite a few episodes. Anyways, that's spooky. That's my recommendation. So I have two. Uh, one is a movie that's not a
1: independent film like I did the last time. It's it's a pretty well known movie called Nobody with Bob Odenkirk who a lot of people remember from Better Call Sal. Uh, but I really loved that movie. That's the only reason I'm recommending it. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's kind of a comedy action movie, I would call it. Uh, but I think uh, anybody can enjoy this, women, men, little babies. Just it's just a good movie. But the book <laughs> that, I, that I really want to put emphasis on uh, recommending is a book called Manhunt, and it's uh, by a man named James L. Swanson. It's called Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer, and it's about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the uh, search for John Wilkes Booth afterwards. Now, I don't know if you're into this sort of thing, but uh, if you're not, even if you aren't into history, this is a really interesting book. It's well-written. It's detailed. A lot of stuff that I didn't know about the assassination and the days following and the search for John Wilkes Booth. Um it's a really, really good book, and I can't recommend it enough.
0: That's cool. Fun fact to know and share, talking about John Wilkes Booth, because he was the one that killed Lincoln, right? Or did I just give the book away?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's the picture on the front of the book is John Wilkes Booth shooting Abraham Lincoln point blank in the in the noggin. Okay. So you're not giving away a plot twist or anything. <laughs> All, right. All right. Fun
0: fact to know and share. Have you ever heard the the, the term or the phrase, uh, your name is mud? Um, No. Uh you ever heard that jack okay so your name is mud or or my name is mud it, it 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 was it's sort of like an attribution of guilt uh and where the term comes from interestingly enough is right after lincoln was shot there was a man with the last name of mud and he was absolutely wrong place wrong time and he was initially arrested as as this the number one, the prime suspect in in Lincoln's murder. And so this caught on quickly after he was arrested, proven after arduous uh tasks to uh to find out that he didn't actually kill Lincoln. He was released, but it was such an ordeal that people started using it as a term like, oh, your name's Mud, like, oh you're you're the one in trouble.
1: Well what's most interesting that I found out reading this book is I didn't know this and I don't think a lot of people know this maybe you guys knew this but John Wilkes Booth at the time at that point in history was a celebrity he was an actor really I didn't know that so it was a that was that would be equivalent to like Brad Pitt today assassinating a president and then going on a, like it was that
2: level of celebrity for that time very well known celebrity There's a lot of odd parallels between the uh the Lincoln assassination and the JFK assassination, too. Like, Lee Harvey oh, Oswald.
0: Numerology-wise, numbers. Like, yeah. like yep. Oswald yep.
2: went and he hid in a theater. Lincoln was killed in a theater. Um, John Wilkes Booth. Oh, I hadn't even thought John about Wilkes that. John Wilkes Booth went and hid in a book depository. <laughs> no, he didn't. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> Both killers have O's in their names. That's a... Isn't it the crazy. same amount of uh, letters in both names, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald? God, I think that, that- there's
0: like there's a whole, there's websites full of all the uncanny similarities between those two presidents and also their, their uh, assassinations. Yeah. It's pretty crazy.
2: Mm-hmm. You got one up?
0: I got one. It's an audio book. Well, it's a book, but I listened to the audible version of it. Um, And I can't recommend it enough. It is is so good. So good. So I just wanted to read the little summary really quick for you. so, So you know what you'd be getting into. It is super, super worth it. So the book is called, and I think I've mentioned it somewhere before, but never on the Hugs podcast. So it's called The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. And the summary of the book is this. In the 1980s, a young adventurer and collector for a government library, Abdel Kader Haidra, journeyed across the Sahara Desert and along the Niger River, tracking down and salvaging tens of thousands of ancient Islamic and secular manuscripts that had fallen into obscurity. The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu tells the incredible story of how Haidra, a mild-mannered archivist and historian from the legendary city of Timbuktu later became one of the world's greatest and most brazen smugglers. There's more to it, but I'll leave it there. Just know this, that that uh, oh, it's crazy. Uh, Timbuktu is one of these places that literally was lost to history. All of the things that he collects over these over these years, where he was collecting all these hidden manuscripts. Basically, what had happened is Timbuktu was the center of commerce at one point, but then uh, religious zealots came in and changed the face of it. Allah, maybe like. I don't know, Afghanistan or one of those countries now where we see it as just kind of bullet ridden. But it was a cultural hub at one point, a beautiful place. And Timbuktu is one of these kind of places. When the when the religious zealots came through and imposed their will on the people, uh, the people grabbed all of the religious manuscripts what these zealots were trying to burn and get rid of. And they hid them in their walls of their houses. They hid them in, in caverns, they, in jars. These thousands and thousands and thousands of thousand-year-old tr- manuscripts were hidden all over the place by these people that were protecting them. And the families knew that they had them, but they wouldn't ever talk about them. So this book is about this historian who gets into the minds and the hearts of these people slowly— and then finally, each one of these people, they, like, over courses of several dinners and meetings and all this stuff, grow to trust him. And then one by one, each of these people say, I have some manuscripts for you. And then, oh, it's just so good. So good. You got to you gotta listen. It's, it's gripping. It really is. It's a really good book. Good audio book or book, if you like. Cool. Reading or reading through your ears.
2: Is Kent okay? Kent looks like he's. He
0: froze again. again.
2: <laughs> Trying so hard.
0: <laughs> I can't. The look on his face is he's either peeing in his chair or he's like, how many ways could I kill this bugger?
1: <laughs> you see that one vein on my forehead just getting more and more pronounced? <laughs> I could i could
2: end his laugh. If a pee in a chair could be like in form, it would be what Kent looks like. He is a pee in a chair. Yeah.
1: <laughs> One of my favorite things about recording with Jack is he can literally be pissing at any time and you never know it.
0: Another funny thing about recording with Jack is he is literally pissing at any time. Yeah. And he, and you most likely know it because yeah. he tells you.
2: Hey, by the way, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald have the same amount of letters in their names. It's 15 letters. and I, yeah, Really? So there's a whole bunch of stuff like that you can look up. I think a lot of people are aware of that kind of thing, but fascinating I love that kind of
0: stuff though yeah it's fascinating all the all the things are just like in life you know where you're like wow I never saw that parallel like like God turned around his dog this world's full of that kind of mystery
1: yeah <laughs> you know another thing about the Lincoln assassination is when we think about the Lincoln assassination in our heads it's like I think in most people's heads it's it's such an impossibly long time ago but yeah. there is a video on YouTube that you can watch of a man that witnessed the Lincoln assassination being interviewed. Mm.
0: Really? Yes, that's awesome. It's really that fascinating.
1: Long? Yes. Wow.
0: I have to check that out.
1: He saw John Wilkes Booth jump cuz he jumps down. Wilkes jumps from the balcony down to the theater, right? On onto stage after he shoots mm. him. Hurts his ankle real bad and and he was a boy at the time, this man that's being interviewed, but he was in the theater that day that the president was killed. And he saw the whole thing unfold and they're asking him, talking, talking to him about it. It's really, really. It's so, I mean, if we've got video and audio of a man that witnessed it being interviewed. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah,
0: it didn't happen too long ago. Or, you know, it, it should be history that definitely we can wrap our brain around. You know, it's not like learning about Egyptians because uh, Egypt doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah,
2: never did. Right. Nah. Dinosaurs.
0: Birds. Fake. <laughs> Do
2: you guys want to watch me pee into something or Our- can we wrap this up?
0: <laughs> I think, well, I think on that note we're going to wrap up this episode. <laughs> uh, hugs, everybody. Bah. <laughs> bah.